So this week, we're going to be starting a new series. And this series is a series called Best Story Ever. (laughs) Best Story Ever. And it's going to be a little bit unique compared to series we've done here at Thrive before because instead of looking at a single book or a single part of the Bible, this is actually going to be a series that will be an overview of the entirety of Scripture. We're going to look at a number of different stories in order to see the Bible from 30,000 feet. Now, uh, why are we doing this? Why the focus on kind of the, the big story that runs through Scripture? Well, a number of different reasons. But one is, you know, when God chose to make himself known to humanity, you know, if you just kind of step back and think about how he, how he did that, um, you know, what, what, what was his method? You know, he wants to make known, you know, his character to us, his qualities, his attributes. Uh, did he do that through just dropping down some kind of book of rules, you know, a bunch of legal codes, um, a set of moral teachings? Uh, no. Uh, did he use a systematic theology? Did he just kind of drop down a big theology textbook with a bunch of doctrines and truths and principles? Well, no. Uh, what he gave us is a story. He gave us a story. The Bible is a story. The Bible has rules. The Bible has theology. But ultimately, the Bible is a story. I mean, just for a minute, actually, just take 30 seconds, and, and I want you to turn to someone who's sitting near you, and, and I want you just to share, like, what is one favorite story that you have? So this could be, like, a favorite book, could be a favorite movie. Um, just think for a minute and share with the person next to you, like, what is a story that just really sticks in your mind as something that has grabbed your heart and grabbed your mind? Uh, for the sake of this, uh, for, for, for just right now, let's say something that's outside of the Bible. So it could be Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, you know, whatever. So yeah, just take, take 30 seconds, answer that question. Okay, I know this is short, but I'm going to come call us back together. So uh, just by raising a hand, uh, any, any favorite stories among us? Yeah. Napoleon Dynamite. Okay, I was in seventh grade when that movie came out, I believe. Uh, yeah, Stephen. The Giver. The Giver. Okay, I, yeah, good book. Uh, Josh. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Who framed, well, who did frame Roger Rabbit? Judge Doom. Oh, okay, spoiler. Okay. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else? Watership Down. Watership Down. Yeah, okay, it's a good book. Uh, another one. High School Musical. High School Musical, okay. Okay, now, now. And, we, and, you know, uh, I won't take answers this time, but I just want you to think to yourself, what is it about those stories that you really, really love? Like, why do they grab your mind and heart? It could be just because of maybe the characters. It could be because of the plot. One of the things that you discover when you think about stories that really move you is that stories have power. Stories have power. So, uh, for example, fun fact. Uh, did you know, did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that there are not... 27, not 28. There are 29 movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, has anyone, anyone here seen them all? Anyone want to claim that, that mantle? Okay, okay, so more hands than I expected. So, 29 movies and counting in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Fun fact number two, have you ever noticed that the plot of every single one of them is always the same? <laughs> you know, so okay, here's the plot of basically every... Every, every Marvel movie, so there's like the, the unlikely character, unlikely hero, who gets thrust into an epic battle against evil. At first, the bad guys seem to be winning, 
And then the good guy, after kind of maybe defeating some of his inner demons and, you know, character development stuff, right? Then, you know, he wins, good triumphs over evil. And, you know, it's just, they just do that 29 times. So they've made $26.6 billion, you know. So, so, okay, why is it, why is it that we're willing to pay $26.6 billion to see 29 movies that all have the same plot over and over and over and over and over again? Okay. <laughs> So many people are saying things. I don't even know what, I I can barely understand what you guys are saying. One of the reasons I would suggest to you that we love stories like that is because there's something about a story of good against evil, love and war, light over darkness, that, that just like our hearts are wired for. Stories are powerful because of that reason. And and what we're going to discover looking at this series is that the Bible is actually the story of all stories. In fact, the reason why we can't get enough of all the other stories is because God's story is the story that all the other stories point to. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The number of movies and books that you actually can see kind of resemble the story of Jesus in the Bible. But the problem is we don't always think about the Bible as a story. You know, we're too distracted with the little details um, and, and maybe like digging into like particular parts of the Bible that we actually miss the big picture. And it's only when you see the big picture that you actually get to see the heart of the plot and the heart of the author. The heart of God becomes so much more vivid and powerful when you see the big story. And so what we're going to do is over the next several weeks, we're going to take 15 passages from the Old Testament, and we're going to take 15 passages from the New Testament, and we're going to get the Bible at 30,000 feet. And tonight, we're going to start with the very first story in this series, which is the story of creation. The story of creation. So uh, at this point, actually, I'm going to pass out our text for tonight. Uh, Anyone want to be a volunteer to help distribute these here? Can I grab someone to... Uh, Travis, can you throw up the next slide there? Thanks. So the the first story we're looking at tonight is the story of creation, you know, how the story begins. And uh, for that, we're going to look at the second chapter of the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And uh, if you're just joining us from the last couple of weeks, um, instead of actually preaching a full message here, what I'm going to do is just flag up a couple of things for you all to notice. And then when you go into small groups, you can dig into the text a little bit more and ask some questions of it in groups. So while that's going around, let me just point out three things to notice tonight in Genesis chapter 2. There's something to notice about God, number one, uh, something we want to notice about the world, number two, and then finally something to notice about human beings. So uh, just let's let's just look at those three things. Um, And to start, I'm actually going to read just the first couple of verses. So uh, starting in the the, the top there, verse 4. Here's how the Bible says uh, the world came to be. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, in basically every story, what happens at the beginning? At the beginning of the story, you typically get introduced to your, your, you know, your main cast of characters. So, for example, example exhibit A, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. You know, what's the very first scene? It's like Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall, and Harry is there too. So you, you get introduced to the main character. Uh, exhibit two, exhibit B. Uh, the Hobbit, anyone ever read the book The Hobbit? Great book. Who, who do you meet first? You meet Bilbo and Gandalf. Or, uh, you know, uh, going back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Iron Man. Who do you meet? You meet Tony Stark. So, same thing here. At the beginning of the Bible, you get the main characters. Now, you can read the Bible in one of two ways. You can read the Bible as though the main character is you, is us as human beings. Or you can read the Bible as the main character being God. And Genesis leaves no doubt that God is the main character of the Bible. And actually, praise God that he's the main character of the Bible. You know, if you read the Bible as though it's a book about you, and it's just a book for you to, to read in order to kind of figure out, okay, here's the, 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 the precepts and the rules and the moral principles that God really wants me to do so that I can be, you know, so that I can impress him. If you're reading the Bible like that, the Bible's going to crush you. It's going to be a burden to you. If you read the Bible about God, as, he, as, as God being the main character, what he's done, then that's going to set you free. Genesis leaves no doubt that God's the main character of the Bible. And what it does is it kind of helps us understand what is the main character really like. So let's just notice a couple of things. Uh, well, first of all, it's pretty obvious that God's the creator. So look at verse 4. Uh, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So God's the creator. Well, let's get some scope of this. Um, you know, so when it says that God makes the earth, you know, we can kind of understand that. In fact, I've got a picture here of the earth. Travis, do you want to throw up the earth there? Okay, so there's the earth. So, you know, the Bible's saying God made that. Uh, but then it also says God made the heavens. And in the Bible, heavens isn't just, you know, the sky. It's the entire universe. So uh, just to give you some scope of this, I want to show you where the earth fits into the heavens. So Travis, go to the next slide. So there's, see the little red letters there? That, that's where the earth is in relationship to our solar system. Then next one. And then see the red letters there? You can't quite see, but it's in the middle. That's our solar system in relationship to all the solar systems, you know, kind of near the other things nearby. And then next. Okay, so that is that little neighborhood in, in, in our galaxy. And then next one. There's our galaxy in red uh, compared to some of the, the nearby galaxies. And remember, like, the, you know, remember where we've come from. Remember, Earth's in there somewhere. And then, uh, next one. Okay, so there's that neighborhood of galaxies in a bigger neighborhood of galaxies. And then, uh, another one. 
Okay, well, <laughs> there's that bigger neighborhood of galaxies and an even bigger neighborhood of galaxies. You see where this is going. And then one more. Okay, that's the observable universe. So when the Bible says in verse 4 that God made the earth, okay, we, we understand that. It also says he made that. <laughs> he made the heavens. So what is this saying from the, you know, the very first verse of this, of this passage? Well, it's saying that, that God is powerful. <laughs> you know, no duh. Like, he's powerful. And then on top of that, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that he, he makes all of this just by speaking. You know, we, we, now that we have Siri, you know, you kind of think that you're, you, you can just speak, you know, and, and it'll come to be, you know, hey, Siri, you know, blah, 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 blah. God speaks. And the whole universe comes to be. And yet, what's so remarkable about this is that God is powerful. And yet, if you look at the text closely, he's also gentle. So, uh, you know, they say comparison's the mother of clarity. Well, let's compare what you see about God's gentleness with, um, actually, another Genesis-like story. Uh, so, there's another creation account uh, from the Babylonian civilization. Uh, there are a lot of different, you know, accounts that early cultures had, you know, trying to explain where the universe came from. The Babylonians are one of those cultures that had a, a creation story like that, and their creation story is called the Enuma Elish. I don't even know what that means, but that's the name, Enuma Elish. Well, um, in the Enuma Elish, uh, the Babylonians believed that there were all these gods, and they were kind of having a, you know, they, they were doing what gods do. They were uh, fighting and partying and all kinds of things. And, and one of the gods, a god named Marduk, killed another one of the gods um, and from her body made the universe. So actually, I've, I've got a little excerpt for you up on the screen on the next slide here. Uh, and so this is talking about how, you know, the one god cut up the other god and made the universe. Uh, it says he sliced her in half like a fish for drying. Half of her he put up to roof the sky, drew a bolt across and made a guard to hold it. Her waters he arranged so they could not escape. And then, you know, the story goes on. It explains how he takes two of her ribs and uses the ribs to make east and west. Don't ask me how that works. Uh, uses her liver to make the pole star, you know, like the, the star you use to navigate. And so the point, of course, is that, like, they thought of their God as being violent and brutal and bloody. You know, he, he creates by slicing and dicing, basically. But, but you know, the, notice, notice what the text says in Genesis. You know, you'd expect... Um, something like, you know, the Enuma Elishim, a God of power, and yet the God of Genesis, although he's a God of power, he's also a God of tenderness and care. So verses 7 and 8. I want you to notice the verbs. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So, let's act these out here, actually. You know, so when it says that God formed the man, you know, how do you form something? You know, like, if you've ever been, like, in, in, if you've, like, ever seen, like, a kid making mud patties, you know, you actually have to kind of get down on your hands and knees and get dirty and filthy and kind of, you know, work the mud with your hands. It's saying that, you know, that's how God formed the first human beings. And then it says, he breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. You know, kind of like CPR, you know, how, how can you breathe into someone's nostrils unless you're actually really closely, intimately near them? 
And then it says, God planted. God planted a garden. God is a gardener. If any of you have ever gardened before, I mean, you know how much uh, time and attention uh, and just gentle, tender sowing and cultivating uh, goes into gardening. The best word that I can think of for all of the things that you see God doing here is the word gentle. So just think about this. Like, when you put these two things together, God is both powerful, but he's also gentle at the same time. If you were to make a list, you know, just make an imaginary list of some of the most powerful people you can think of, you know, I wonder who would be on that list. You might have people on there like Napoleon, maybe Hitler, Churchill, you know, big world-shaping people. Uh, but then think about maybe a second list, uh, this time of the most gentle people you can imagine. So maybe it would be people like Mother Teresa or Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so you've got those two lists, but notice that, you know, th think of how rare it would be to ever see one person on both of those lists, both someone who's powerful and gentle. And yet God is on both of them. And so what this is showing is that the God who's introduced as the main character of the Bible is what you might call a complex character. <laughs> He's a complex character. Um, and it kind of makes us wonder, well, you know, what's he going to do in the rest of this story? So first of all, notice something about God. And then number two, notice something about the world that God makes. So, uh, you know, throughout this chapter, what's kind of cool about it is all before sin enters the world. So what that means is that this chapter is actually showing you God's original design. It's God's original design, his desired purpose for the world and humanity before sin. One word that you could use uh, that I think kind of captures what that original design uh, was is the word shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word. You know, it's a greeting. It means hello or goodbye. But it also is a deeper word than that. It's a word that means peace. And not just sort of a ceasing of hostilities, but a kind of fullness. Um, one of my favorite definitions of shalom is that it's a world where there's nothing broken and there's nothing missing. A world where nothing is broken and nothing is missing. And that's the original design that you see God intended for the world. It's a good world. You know, in the Enuma Elish, the, the, the Babylonian story, it's a world of chaos. It's filled with storms and blood and guts and gore. <laughs> but in the Bible, the world God makes is a good world. You know, even just this little detail stood out to me. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is where you kind of uh, get uh, some, some detail about these different rivers that flow through the garden. And it mentions that one of them flows around a land, uh, the whole land of Havilah. And it mentions that there happens to be gold there. And it says the gold of that land is good. <laughs> Interesting little detail. You know, why do you think that the author of Genesis took attention to mention a little random detail like that? You know, I think he's pointing to the fact that the world God made is good. And in chapter one, what does God notice after the, the end of each day of creation? He looks at what he's made and he says, it is good. So it's a good world. It's a beautiful world. Look at verse nine. Verse 9 says, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. That's a beauty word. It's saying the word, world God made was beautiful. And then, 
I love this. It's a world to be explored. Um, you know, if you go back to the, the, the couple of verses that talk about the rivers, you know, why are the rivers in there? You know, why, why all of a sudden does, does, does God kind of give us a geography lesson? <laughs> well, you know, notice that, it, you know, it kind of tells you that these rivers, they flow out of Eden. So it's kind of interesting. They, they flow outside into the wider world. And the text actually tells you where they go. <laughs> now, now, how on earth, how on earth, how on earth would, would, would it be known where these rivers went unless someone actually went and followed them, <laughs> went outside of the garden and followed where they went, explored them? You know, for example, um, when, when I think about this, I just think of what it's like when maybe, you, you know, maybe you've been at a museum or you've seen a painting or something, and the painting's just so beautiful that you just want to walk into it. If you've had that experience. Or maybe, you know, you've been listening to a piece of music and it's just so gorgeous that you just wish that you could not only wrap it around you like a blanket, but you just wish you could like wrap it up inside of you. It's just so beautiful. The amazing thing that Genesis 2 tells us is that God hasn't just given us a beautiful masterpiece to look at. He's actually given us a masterpiece to live in and a masterpiece that we get to not just live in, but explore. You know, God is not against knowledge and discovery and curiosity. You know, the reason why he, he, he mentions the, the detail of what you would discover if you followed each of those rivers is that because he loves, he loves creativity. He loves exploration. He loves adventure, I think you can say. All of these things are a part of the good world that God made. And then finally, number three, notice what the passage says about human beings. Um, so let me read verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So now you get human beings. Uh, you know, God makes a lot of things in Genesis 2. He makes the heavens, he makes the earth, he makes trees, he makes animals, he makes shrubs. <laughs> but the most uh, attention is actually given to one particular creature that God makes, and that's us. And it raises the question, uh, you know, we've seen a little bit of God's original design for the world, but what's God's original design for human beings? One of the things you find out in chapter two is that that original design includes two unique relationships. Two unique relationships. So number one, 
One of the things this says is that our original design is to not be alone. It's to be in relationship with other humans. So verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, this is pretty remarkable because as we've seen, everything God has made so far is good. And this is the first time that the text says there's something that's not good. And this is even more remarkable if you're, you know, like one of those Christians who just thinks, oh, you know, I'm just so spiritual. All I need is just me and Jesus. Come on. I would like to point out to you, oh, oh, super spiritual Christian person, that in this story, Adam is all alone with God. It's just him and God. And you know what God says? God says, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not good that you're alone. I mean, he's not really alone because God's there with him, right? But no, like it says he's alone. He needs relationship with other human beings. And so we're created for community, by the way. You know, maybe you have met people, maybe you've been this person before where, you know, you've isolated yourself from other Christians. And, and, you know, maybe you've stopped attending a church, maybe because you have issues with the way that they do things. And, you know, maybe there's, you know, no other church you've really found that kind of seems like it's enough for you. And so you're just kind of isolating yourself. It's just you and and your Bible. (laughs) I just want to tell you that is not... God's will for you. And you need to get involved in a church. You need to be in a church on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, as the case may be, because we're not meant to be alone. Now, the focus here is on a specific kind of relationship, a specific kind of human community called marriage. So God creates woman in verse 18, uh, in, in this section. In verse 18, uh, God says, you know what Adam is in need of? He's in need of a helper fit for him. And literally what that means is like opposite him. So they are men and women like each other. They are also opposite each other. Maybe some of you have figured this out in, in your years of living on this earth, that men and women are similar and equal, but there are also some very significant differences. Uh, Genesis affirms that. <laughs> Hopefully you feel affirmed by that. <laughs> So they, uh, they, they are different. They correspond to each other, even though they are different. And what this also tells us is that this particular kind of human community called marriage is not a human idea. It actually is God's idea. It's there from the very dawn of creation. Marriage, therefore, is a good and beautiful thing. There's no shame in desiring it. It's a good and beautiful thing. And just by the way, I want to point out one little detail that we're not going to talk about now, but you can talk about it in small groups tonight. Notice verse 24. Um, Notice that in verse 24, you know, it says there are three things, three elements that go together in marriage. Just would encourage your groups tonight to notice, you know, what are those things? What does it look like to actually live uh, those things out? And then last of all, um, there's a second relationship that God says characterizes the original design for humanity. And that's relationship with him. Relationship with God. Um, So look at verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, okay, let's just notice a couple of things about the God and human relationship here. Well, so first of all, uh, what, what, what is the first thing that God says? 
He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And the word eat uh, in the original language, it's emphatic. It's like God is saying to Adam, feast, (laughs) enjoy, you know, bon appetit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, God is telling Adam, I've made this for you to enjoy. Um, There's an author named Philip Yancey who, um, you know, perhaps even inspired by this very passage, um, once kind of, kind of had a reflection on, on this part of God's relationship to us. And here's, here's what he asks. He says, why is eating fun? Why is eating fun? Plants and the lower animals manage to obtain their quota of nutrients without the luxury of taste buds. Why can't we? Why are there colors in the world? Some people get along fine without the ability to detect color. Why complicate vision for all the rest of us? It struck me the other day, after I had read my umpteenth book on the problem of pain, that I've never even seen a book on the problem of pleasure. I've never met a philosopher who goes around shaking his head in perplexity over the basic question of why we experience pleasure. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? (laughs) It didn't have to be that way. And yet God made it that way. He has given us a world of blessing, a world of extra, unnecessary, superfluous, unmerited pleasure. And so ask yourself tonight, what does that say about who he is? So that's one element, but then there's a second element, which is there's a boundary. Uh, Verse 17 gives you the boundary. God says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in small groups, one other thing you can ask tonight is, okay, what's going on with this command? Why is it here? Why is it this particular command? You know, we know it can't be that God is against knowledge or against curiosity because we've already established that Genesis gives you a world where curiosity and learning are actually encouraged. So it probably can't, therefore, be that God is a killjoy. You know, that he's given them Um, paradise, and then he's kind of said, well, I actually don't want you to enjoy it. Well, it can't be, because if that were the case, you know, surely he would have given them more than just one command. There's only one command here. So I'm actually, I'm not going to tell you, um, you know, at least my opinion on on, on what what the significance of the command is, but you can puzzle over that tonight as you go to your groups. Uh, But just as you do, just ask some of these questions. Uh, You know, who is the God who's revealed in this chapter? What does God's blessings say about who he is? And what, all, what, by the way, does God's boundaries say about who he is? What does it say about the kind of relationship that God wants to have with human beings? So those are some questions you can wrestle over with tonight. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go to small groups. Father, uh, thank you for this story, uh, this story of stories. And Father, I pray that we would see your heart as we journey through scripture together together over the next several weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.